Father, just a joy to be here and to worship with these believers. You are worthy of our worship. You are glorious and kind and loving. Your love is deep, deep, deep love. You saw us in our sin. And you pursued us through Jesus Christ. And Father, we just pray now that as we look at your word, that you will show us a glimpse of your glory. We want to know you more. So we will pursue you even more. Thank you, Father, for our time. Thank you for your word. Give us ears to hear, hearts to understand. Help us to focus on your word and understand it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Wow, I think that was one of my favorite times ever of worshiping with you guys. Uh, I am now stuck. I will always sit in the front row. <laughs> it's a wonderful spot to be up here. Uh, just hearing you sing. It's a glorious thing to know the Lord and what he is doing. And to hear the echoes of believers worshiping God. It's a wonderful thing. I'm glad you're here today. Today we're going to see what brings joy to our Lord. And in turn, what should bring joy to our hearts. I pray that as we examine this passage, we will be encouraged to find our joy in the salvation of sinners. And we will be exhorted to avoid being like the Pharisees and scribes who were so obsessed with self-exaltation, they couldn't find joy in the repentant sinners. Folks, we need to find our satisfaction in so many places, and it ultimately is found in Christ and all that He is doing. Unfortunately, we and in our culture and in our society are pushed to find our joy in temporary things. Our satisfaction is found in things that don't matter and ultimately will be burned up. But we see in this passage that we should find our joy in two main places, and that is the Lord Himself and the Lord's people. That's ultimately where we should find our joy, is in God and His people. True lasting joy is found in knowing and enjoying the Lord Jesus Christ and helping others know and enjoy that same Lord Jesus Christ. That's what our lives should be about. I want to know Him and help others know Him. That's where our joy is found, folks. This is the main point of the parables that are in, found in Luke chapter 15. So all of us need to ask ourselves a question. Are we pursuing our joy in these locations? In Christ and in others finding their joy and satisfaction in Him. So let's continue as we look at these parables. Remember the setting for the parable. It's found back in verses 1 and 2. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, 
Ultimately, you have two groups that are in the room along with Jesus. The sinners are in the area. The sinners in need of a Savior. These were people pursuing Jesus. These were people, though they were uh, often found in bondage to sin, they were, it appears to be coming out of that and coming to Christ for answers. We know back in Luke chapter 14 that Jesus had laid the line down. And the line was this. You must love me more than father, mother, brother, sister. You must love me more than anything you possess or own. I must be more important than all these things. And he ended with, he who has ears, let him hear. And what that means is, is who, whoever has an understanding of me, come to me. Follow me. Embrace me. And then what happens in 15.1? The sinners and tax collectors come to hear him. They want to know him. So they're saying, in effect, by coming to him, you are more important than anything else. They have turned from their sinful ways, and they're turning to embrace the Savior. Yet you have the other group, the righteous in their own eyes. They couldn't stand the fact that sinners were coming to be with Jesus. They couldn't stand the fact that Jesus would associate with these lowly, wicked people. And they were judging the very God that they said they served. The one that was revealed in Genesis through in the law, right? In the whole Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. The righteous in their own eyes were ignorant that the God himself hadn't been incarnate and was in their midst. And they couldn't see it. And they were the ones pursuing self-exaltation. So that's the setting. And we've seen so far in this chapter that God is all about pursuing the humble sinner. He rejoices greatly over their repentance and their restoration. God enjoys people coming to him, turning from sin and embracing him. And we saw that Jesus gave three parables to make this point. He gave the parable of the lost sheep, which we talked about last time. And then the parable of the lost silver, we'll talk about today. And then next time we'll talk about the parable of the lost son. Last time when we were in Luke chapter 15, we covered briefly the lost sheep. And we saw that there's a cycle in the parables. All of them are, are told in the same pattern, in the same cycle of events. There's a problem given. The problem last time with the parable of the lost sheep was that one lost sheep out of a hundred, there's one lost sheep out of a hundredfold of sheep. So in other words, the problem was we got one missing. And then there's the pursuit. The shepherd left the 99 and went after the one. Once he finds him, that brings us to the second stage or scene, the recovery. When the sheep was found, the unclean sheep was placed on the shepherd's shoulder and returned to the fold. That's the recovery. And then there's this great celebration when he returns with the sheep, the shepherd. Upon arriving home, the shepherd calls together his friends and celebrates the recovery of the sheep. And this same pattern, this same cycle is found in all of the three parables. Finally, he comes to the application. Jesus makes a direct application to their circumstances. The parable is compared to the joy 
in heaven over the repentance and restoration of one lost sinner. Again, he's telling picture stories to be compared with real life circumstances. There's a lack of joy also over those that are unrepentant, the self-righteous. He calls them the righteous, but in fact he was obviously given a backhanded slap, slap to the Pharisees, right? The righteous in their own eyes. God does not rejoice over the righteous in their own eyes, is what he was getting at. God finds no joy in self-claimed man. He's not about the people that clean up the outside of the cup. God does not rejoice in that. He's not about works righteousness. God finds joy in men that are humble and find their joy in God alone. And realize that their forgiveness is found in only Him. That's where God rejoices. Not in those that think they're good. Or clean themselves up on the outside. So Jesus has began to rebuke the Pharisees and the scribes. For their self-righteousness. And their rejection of the repentant sinners. At the same time, He's revealing God's joy and where it's found. It's found in repentance. And the reconciliation of sinners. This week we're going to look at it further in the lost silver. Let's look again at this second parable. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, we see in this passage, the lost silver. In the lost silver, we start through this cycle, again, track down through the events that are found in all, in all three parables. We start with the problem. Or what woman, if she has ten coins and loses one coin? Here's the problem. Why does Jesus use a woman now? That's a great question. I mean, he's talking to Pharisees and scribes, right? And the sinners and tax collectors. Most likely a group mostly of what? Probably men. So why does he talk about, why does he bring up women? First of all, he told the Pharisees and scribes, in a sense, in the first parable, he said, who shepherd? What shepherd? And the idea is, is to put yourself in the place of a shepherd. He's saying to Pharisees and scribes, put yourself in the place of a shepherd. Now, you know what that's like doing? Or you know what that's, when you tell a Pharisee or a scribe, you know, think of yourself as like a shepherd. You know what they're thinking? Yuck! That's not me. I'm not going to touch that unclean animal. <laughs> That's not me. Well, he steps it up, <laughs> in effect. Jesus says, or what woman? Are you saying that I should associate myself with a woman? <laughs> in that society, in that day, the Pharisees would have thought women as what? A little higher than an animal. They would have thought down on them. So you got shepherds? To touch unclean animals and women? I'm supposed to associate with them? What's he doing? 
talk about this as we go along, but he's luring them into a gigantic trap. He's bringing them in because, see, what they're doing is they're probably judging. As they're listening to the story, they're probably judging the shepherd and the woman. As it goes along, oh, she lost money. I figure, woman. Shepherd, oh, he lost a sheep. You're supposed to be doing your job. Y'all unclean people, no wonder. Get to the last story. He turns it around, guns blazing, right at the older son. Because that's who they are. They're the older son. Ladies and gentlemen, it is so important. He's calling them. If a shepherd rejoices over a sheep, a lo- finding a lost sheep, or a woman rejoices over a found coin, then how in the world can these self-righteous Pharisees and scribes not rejoice over the salvation of tax collectors and sinners? How in the world you put yourself above these people and they rejoice over these things? How in the world can you not rejoice over sinners coming to God? By the time Jesus gets to the last parable, the Pharisees and scribes would have been fully in the mindset of the older brother in the prodigal son. We'll see it. That's what they would have been thinking. They were probably judging the woman and the shepherd for losing the valuable item, valued items. The problem, they probably would have thought, yes, they should rejoice they found it. Then as Jesus tells the last parable, he turns and rebukes them directly. You're like this older son that doesn't even rejoice over your brother coming back to your father. He turns his attention to rebuke these wicked, self-righteous ones. By the end, Jesus is saying, in effect, you are the older brother. You don't care about your own people. But back to the second parable. Let's look a little bit further at this. You got ten silver coins. The silver coin was worth roughly one day's wage. These silver coins were called drachmas. Ten coins would have been a common amount of saving for a poor woman. This isn't an upper-class lady. This is a lady that's got ten coins. That's valuable. In a society that didn't have credit cards and slavery was only one bill away, a savings like this was pretty important, and every coin mattered. Losing one silver coin, this would be a horrifying problem for a poor woman. The loss of one-tenth of all she had would have been no little problem. It would have been a huge one, a serious problem. The Pharisees and scribes, again, might not have thought of this as a huge loss, but for a common poor woman, it was a huge loss. Again, like the sheep might not have been valuable to the Pharisees, it would have been a huge loss for a shepherd. Like I said, Jesus is showing how his thinking is totally contrary to the way the Pharisees think. The Pharisees value nothing or no one but themselves. But Jesus values even the most wretched and wicked sinner. That's glorious news. The problem might not have been so huge for the Pharisees and scribes, but the reaction to finding these items stood in stark contrast to the way the self-righteous would care less for much more valuable commodity, a much more valuable commodity, a person's soul. So Jesus starts again with a desperate situation. 
A poor woman has lost her coin. The circumstances are no small problem for this woman in the story. And folks, the scary thing is that in our culture and in our day, we would have probably fallen right into the trap of the Pharisees and the scribes. Because we would have thought, no big deal. Ten coins, you lose one. (laughs) No big deal. They could relate with the loss of material things, but they did not value the most important commodity of the world. And ladies and gentlemen, that's kind of what our culture is like, isn't it? We value the things that don't matter, and we don't value the things that do matter. That is our culture. We don't care about people. We care about self and materialism. They considered these tax collectors and sinners unworthy of saving. And guys, I cannot stress to you enough this. I don't want our church to be like this. Do you? I want us to reach out to our community with a desire to see even the lowest of low come to Christ. Where their joy is found in Him and Him alone. I pray we're not the Pharisees and scribes that value everything except the things that matter. They saw them as deserving hell and judgment. That's what the Pharisees thought of the scribe or the, the tax collectors and sinners. They deserve judgment anyway. Why were they so cold? Why were the Pharisees and scribes like this? Why would parables like this be such a slap in their face? Because they valued themselves over God and others. But the tax collectors and sinners of Jesus' day were beginning to realize that Jesus was more valuable than their own lives. They were seeing that he was worthy of following. To turn away from the wretched ways was a good thing because Jesus is better. They were coming near to hear him as Luke chapter 15 verse 1 says. They saw Christ for who he is. Worthy of worship, worthy of delighting in, worthy of spending time with. Scribes and Pharisees were totally obsessed with their own hearts and their own self-exaltation. Jesus was painting a picture of the dramatic contrast between the repentant sinners who were coming to Jesus, which brought joy to Jesus, and then the contrast, the self-righteous Pharisees that brought anger to his soul. Jesus was calling these Pharisees to value what really matters, people's souls. Jesus was comparing the lost coin and the lost sheep to those tax collectors and sinners who were in need of a Savior. Again, if a common poor woman rejoices and shares her joy with others over finding one of her lost coins, how much more should we rejoice and share our joy with others as they come to Christ. That should be our primary joy in life, right? Christ and others coming to know his joy. Those should be our joys. If they're not our joys, we might be mixed up. We might be the Pharisees and scribes. Ladies and gentlemen, evangelism, (laughs) evangelism and sharing your faith with other people is not a burden. It's a privilege and a joy. It's what we do. We as believers know Christ and want to make him known, right? That's what we're about. Christ is good. 
He's worthy of joy from everybody. Everybody should delight in him, right? Do you delight in him? Just a side note. Is he your joy? If he is, don't you want others to rejoice in him too? Or are we like the Pharisees and scribes, oh, that person's unworthy of having joy? (laughs) No, they shouldn't have the happiness and joy of having their sins paid for. (laughs) No, they're so wretched, let them go. We've missed it. That's what the Pharisees and scribes did. Why? Because they were exalting themselves. The problem's there. The lost coin is there. Notice the pursuit. Notice the pursuit. What woman does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? In Christ's day, the homes often did not have windows. Windows made the houses hotter or colder depending on the weather outside. They wanted to keep it pretty stable. So homes of the poor especially were very dark all the time. So losing a coin meant what? You'd have to light some lamps and try to go looking to find this coin. The question gives, and notice it's formed in a question here. Jesus gives this question, and it assumes an answer, doesn't it? What woman does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Well, there's an assumed answer. Of course she's going to do this. Of course this poor lady that's lost a coin is going to do this. If a poor woman lost a coin, obviously she would light a lamp and sweep the home to cover each every inch of the house to find out where the coin was. A careful search would be logical. A careful search would be obvious. A careful search would be common sense, correct? We got to find this coin. It's important. It's obvious. (laughs) It's almost like he's saying backhand slam again. Ready? Listen. It's obvious the sinners and tax collectors are coming to me. Of course you should be happy. Your attitude's wrong. Come on, it's common sense. God rejoices over the repentance of sinners. It's what it's all about, right? Shouldn't we be happy for these people? They're coming to Christ. Isn't this common sense? That's what he's saying in effect. Put yourself there. That's common sense. It's common sense for Believers, to rejoice over the repentance of sinners. Again, there's a huge implication for the setting, as I say. It makes logical sense to search diligently for a lost coin. Then obviously it makes sense for God to pursue the lost souls, for Christ to pursue the people, the tax collectors and sinners that are humbled by their circumstance. If it's obvious that a shepherd would diligently pursue his lost sheep, how much more should the religious leaders pursue the wicked of their day? Right? If it's obvious that a poor woman that loses a valued coin will diligently pursue her lost coin, how much more should anyone who is, has the glorious news of God also pursue the wicked to hear it? You know... It's funny to me that evangelism is something that people for many, many, many years over the last hundred years have had to preach over and over and over. You need to go evangelize. And it's almost like 
sermons, whole entire sermons, and sometimes preachers would get up there and go on and on and on and on and on about evangelizing. You need to go tell people about Jesus. You know, there's only something wrong with it. You know why there's something wrong with it? You shouldn't really have to be told. This is just common sense. This is just the way we should be. We should be about people. We really shouldn't even have to be preaching sermons about it. If we're having to preach sermons about evangelizing, then we're more, more likely like the Pharisees and scribes. They didn't get it. But if you know the joy of Christ, why wouldn't you share it? Does that make sense? We should be the most evangelistic people. Because we know our sins are forgiven. And we know the joy of Christ. Correct? Do I need to preach sermons on it? I shouldn't. You should just do it. Come on. Otherwise, we're a group of Pharisees and scribes. True? What do we pursue? What do we value? If we are pursuing our comforts and our fleshly desires, then we value ourselves over God and other people. True joy, folks, is not found in those fleshly things. It's found in pursuing God and His joy, which is the salvation of sinners. True joy is found in seeing sinners redeemed and restored and becoming disciples of Christ. That's where joy is found. So let's pursue people diligently for God's glory and our joy. Next we see the recovery scene. She'll search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, it implies what? Okay, she found it. It's there. Again, as mentioned, the search continues until the last item is found. This is the goal. A lost coin is found. A valued item is recovered. A prized item is found. This is the guaranteed recovery because the owner does not stop until it is found. Again, the picture story is not hard to comprehend. In all three stories, the recovery is the climax of the whole point of each parable. That's the point of, wow, awesome. Lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. He's restored. That's what it's about. Immediately, the mood in the story changes. One from frantic, oh, oh, they need it. I need my coin back. I need my sheep. Oh, I want my son to return to Joy, excitement, it's the climax. From concern and desperation to joy and celebration. That's the contrast. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we often think of Jesus as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And that is definitely true. One of the main reasons why is because the vast majority of the people didn't come to him. They didn't pursue him. They proudfully ignored him and rejected him. 
But there were times of great joy. I know for a fact Christ rejoiced. How do I know? Because sinners came to him. While the vast number of his people rejected him, there was a remnant of the Jews that repented and received their Messiah. This would have been huge joy for Christ. I'm going to say something that's really staggering the more I've meditated on this. I believe God and I believe this I believe Jesus could rejoice and be sorrowful at the same time. That's a, that's a hard thing to comprehend. How? Hook it up with the creator. <laughs> he could do it. Why do I say this? Well, think of the cross scene. He is dying to pay for sin, right? At the same time, he is saving millions of people. He is sorrowful, but yet joyful. He's also, remember the cross scene, you've got the sinners, one of them mocking him on one side, rejected him. Both of them mocked him initially, but then one repents. It's like God gave him a nice little glimpse of joy on the cross as one of the sinners on the cross repents. If a, law, a woman rejoices over a lost coin and a shepherd rejoices over one sheep being returned and a father rejoices over a prodigal son returning, then how much more does our Savior rejoice when one of the thieves on the cross that he's dying for repents? What a glorious truth that God... The God-man rejoiced and was sorrowful at the same time. Staggering. We're getting in these parables a glimpse into the heart of Christ. He rejoiced over the restoration of sinners and tax collectors. If the goal of Christ's ministry was the restoration and finding of the lost, then, by the way, shouldn't that be our goal too? The recovery of the lost should be one of our primary joys in life. We should make it our goal to promote God's joy, which is the recovery of lost sinners. I want God to be happy, don't you? I want him to be so joyful. How, I, how does he get joy? When sinners come to him. So what am I going to do? I'm going to promote him so sinners will come to him. God uses the gospel to transform hearts to bring joy. So promote the gospel. Tell people about Christ. Don't water, by the way, this does not mean water down the gospel to get more people into the building. <laughs> because if we give a false gospel that doesn't make any sense, then they're not really going to repent, and then God's not really going to be joyful. Filling the building is not what it's about. Proclaiming the gospel is what it's about, because that's where their joy is found. Not in a full church building or a latte. No, we don't serve lattes here. But as we see, <laughs> Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. God will save people for himself and for his joy through Christ, the name which is above every name. And so we proclaim Christ so that people will enjoy God. That's what we want. People delighting and being satisfied with Christ. 
the obvious question is, is, again, are you satisfied with Christ? Is he better than anything for you? If not, then maybe your glimpse of Christ is way too small. Run to him. He is good. So we've seen the problem, the pursuit, the the recovery, and now we see the celebration. She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I have lost. The same exact words are found in 15.6 almost and 15.9 over the shepherd. He says, Rejoice with me. Same phrase, Rejoice with me. Again, this story, the woman calls her friends together to rejoice with her, to celebrate with her. Over her finding the lost coin. At first glance we might think. What's the big deal? (laughs) Okay so you found the coin. Good. How does that help me? Listen closely. This is is very important. Stay focused. Attention. Listen. Very important. You might say. What's the big deal? Why would a lady go and say. Hey. (laughs) Come rejoice with me. I found a coin. What's that matter? I didn't lose anything. I didn't lose anything. I didn't lose a coin. Why should I rejoice with you? Hey, you want it? You got your coin back? Hey, you're, you're good. Why should I rejoice with you? That thought process is the heart of the Pharisees' problem. The Pharisees and scribes had a major problem. They were all about themselves. They didn't find joy in other people. They found joy in themselves. They were satisfied with their own self-exaltation, but not in the joy of other people. (laughs) You see, here's our problem. This is how wicked our hearts are. Somebody's rejoicing, and we go, why is he talking to him? Why is he talking to her? Why is she rejoicing over a coin? Who cares? Miss the point, right? Let me ask you a question. Do you find joy in seeing other people rejoice? Or do you find jealousy, envy, and bitterness? (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, oh, it goes so far. Oh, it's everywhere. Somebody gets a new car and you go, you go like this. Great, it's nice. Sure wish I had one. Walk home, get home, get in the house. Did you see how much money they spent on that car? (laughs) Pharisee! Pharisee! You just judge the motives of their heart. Who are you to elevate yourself over other people? You can't even listen to this story, the lost coin, and get it. You miss it. Whoa, right? Everybody in the room says, ouch, get off my toes. (laughs) Hurts me too. Ladies and gentlemen, if we can't rejoice over a small thing like somebody getting something, how are we going to rejoice when they come to know Christ? We put ourselves above other people 
We can't even comprehend these parables. Stop. Look at your heart. Rejoice with people that know the Lord. Notice the motive of her desire for her friends to rejoice for her is clearly seen. It says, for I have found the coin which I had lost. This is just common sense. This is great joy in finding something valuable that we lost. Y'all do this, right? The joy just spills over. We go, wow, God, this is good. Well, this is good. I got something back that I lost. Shouldn't it be that way when people come to Christ? When people walk with Jesus, shouldn't we rejoice over their walk with the Lord? Shouldn't that be what we pursue? Shouldn't we long to see other people walk and enjoy God? I mean, are y'all seeing this as Great Sun Campus as we go through Philippians? I mean, it's like his joy is found in everybody else's pursuits. <laughs> Their pursuit of Christ, and he gets joy. He just wants to see people know God. That's all he does. Paul's like, yes, my joy is in you as you rejoice in Christ. And so he tells him, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Command, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because his joy is found in them rejoicing in Christ. Wild thought. That's called people not thinking about themselves at all. It's a man obsessed with other people's joy. True joy is found in Christ, and so he wants them to rejoice in Christ. You get it, guys? So what brings joy to your soul? What makes you so joyful that you desire to share that joy with other people? I'm afraid we're way too often like the Pharisees and scribes. We are totally obsessed with ourselves and our own self-righteousness that we often have no time for people and pointing them to the hope of the gospel. We ask, why am I always so miserable and unsatisfied? You ever ask that about yourself? Why am I so depressed and miserable and unhappy? There's no joy in me. Why am I like this? Have you ever done that? You ever asked that question? I've asked it. Why am I depressed? Answer, because Mike, you're obsessed with yourself at this moment. You are focused on Mike. And if you continue to focus on Mike, you're going to be miserable. Stop and look at yourself in the mirror for a long time, and guess what you're going to be? Miserable. Some of you might be better looking than me, and that would be easier for you, but I will be miserable. The reality is this. Our joy is not found in ourselves. Our joy, true joy, is found in other people rejoicing and being satisfied with Christ. And if you're not pursuing other people having joy in Christ, then you have missed it. You will never be satisfied. You will never be joyful. You get it? We're obsessed with ourselves and we must repent and be satisfied with Jesus. So after explaining the celebration of the woman finding the lost coin, Jesus turns to apply the story to his audience. Notice the application. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of 
the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, when Jesus says that little phrase, I tell you, that's the time for the punchline. Get the point. Just like a woman rejoices over finding the same a lost coin, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The idea here is there is joy in the sight of or the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I actually believe that he's talking about God rejoicing in front of the angels. The way this is worded. Literally, in the presence of angels, it's not necessarily that the angels are there, but it's in the sight of the angels, in front of them. So the angels see God rejoicing, and what does God rejoice over? God rejoices over repentant sinners. God's joy is found in sinners repenting and turning to him. Over the last couple of weeks, I have been thinking on this passage And this has been one of the most encouraging thoughts I've ever had. God rejoices over repentance? (laughs) I've often thought, okay, return to me the joy of my salvation. Okay? I've I've gotten that concept that there's joy at the end of turning from my sin to trust God again. Turning and embracing him and asking him forgiveness, there's joy for me. But it's a whole nother level here. You ready? There's joy... From God when I do that. And that's hard for me. I admit it. It's hard for me. Because I I have a tendency to try to live up to people's expectations. And people in authority, I try to get their approval. You know, I I try to, okay, if I come to you, you're probably going to smack me, right? You're probably going to, okay, if I come to you, God, you're going to give me like ten lists to, to, to clean myself up, right? God doesn't do that. That's not what God's about. So we have a tendency to do this, don't we? We think, okay, I've sinned. Okay, I've got to clean this up, and then I can go to God, and he'll be happy with me. Right? That's what we think. That is not what he's saying here. It's not about cleaning yourself up. It's turning from the sin and embracing God's forgiveness and seeking him and finding your joy in him again delighting in him and you know what he does he doesn't backhand you and he doesn't give you a list he doesn't say oh well you should be miserable you should mourn and weep that's just horrible now once we turn to him he's like i love you i embrace you if we are mourning over our sin and we hate our sin Run to Christ. Turn to him because he will rejoice over your turn to him. He loves you. This is glorious truth. This is God's response to repentance. And it doesn't just happen when you first get saved. It's every time you sin. Anybody sin today? (laughs) There's joy. He loves you. Run to him. He's there. He's like this. Yes. He's the father of the prodigal son. We'll read next week. He's this. Yes. I love you. Folks, God is not like the legalistic Pharisees 
that say to the broken sinner, well, you should be miserable, you wicked sinner. Grovel, mourn, pay penance, pay me back, make up for all you have done bad. Then maybe I'll forgive you. God is not like that. I think we all think God is like some harsh father who expects us to make up for everything we've done bad. We all think that God is like that unforgiving father who expects us to clean up ourselves first. And then he might accept our apology. But God's nothing like this. God rejoices when we turn away from sin and turn to him for restoration and reconciliation. Yes, we own our consequences of our sin. Yes, we accept them. We say, yep, these are ours. But our joy is not in our circumstances anyway. Our joy is then in Christ, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy. You break the law, you get arrested, you repent, you go to God, and you rejoice in jail. In Christ. Because Christ is good. And he's better than your circumstances. And I'll take it, right? A little spanking here so I can rejoice with Christ is good. I like him. He's better. I'll be satisfied with him. We rejoice over him, and he rejoices over us when we turn to him. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we all need to learn about the heart of God and how he responds to people who have rebelled against him. He rejoices when we turn to him. We must be like the Lord Jesus when he deals with broken people. We too must be like this, ladies and gentlemen. Rejoice in their turning to Christ for forgiveness and restoration. Don't make them pay penance to earn your friendship back. Do you hear me? Somebody asks you for forgiveness, say, okay, got it. Love you. Rejoice in the reconciliation. Pretty hard? Is that hard? Somebody sins against you? Is that hard? Hard when we've forgotten the cross, right? It's ultimately hard when we forget that God rejoices every time we return to him. You know, aren't you glad God doesn't do that to us? Oh, you've done this one too many times, sinner. You ever thought that? I've done this sin one too many times. There's no way God will rejoice when I return to him now. Yes, he does what he expects of us he will only do this and empower us to do it by his grace if God and his angels rejoice over the heart of our heart that turns from sin to God then we should too the obvious question is how do we know that we are really repentant we can't look into a person's heart another person when they come to our can we know whether they're really repentant well I believe it's our job to let God figure that out and just embrace them. They come with any kind of remorse at all. Smile. Love you. What if they make five excuses as they walk up to you? Love you. Come here. No, we're going to 
give them a list. Okay, no, 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 no. You didn't word that well enough. You didn't word that apology well enough. Here, I want you to change the wording a little bit. I want it to be a little bit clearer. Okay. You understand? You sinned against God, and you sinned against me. These are the words I want you to use. You ready? I've done this. I'm falling guilty of this myself. I've done it too. You know, my kids all go, Amen. <laughs> Sorry isn't good enough. Hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, be careful. Be careful. Let God take care of people's true repentance or not. I think we need to be open arms, rejoicing that a person wants to be reconciled with us. Would you not agree? I want to be your friend again. Okay, done. Love you. So how do we have this kind of attitude? How do we rejoice with no strings attached? Why, how do we rejoice with the angels? I think the answer is found in our understanding of who we are in these parables. Listen closely. Who are you in the parable? The answer is we're the lost one. If you understand that we are the lost coin, we are the lost sheep that was found, and we are the lost prodigal son that was found by God. We get it. We get it. We get these parables. We rejoice in these parables. Ladies and gentlemen, there was a problem. You were born into a problem, weren't you? The problem is, is that you were born sinful, totally alienated from God. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that your heart was more deceitful than all else. You were desperately sick. You couldn't even understand how wicked you were. That's who you are. You are the lost one. You are a part of lost humanity. You were born this way. But God, God pursued us. 1 Timothy 1.15 says the Apostle Paul, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. We are the lost sinner. Luke 19.10 says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That's me. That's you. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. God, who condescended to become man, came to earth to pursue us. What a glorious truth. He took on flesh, and he obeyed when we didn't. And he obeyed to the cross. And at the cross, he was ruthlessly murdered. And God the Father poured out the wrath of God on the Son to pay for our sin. That is pursuit, isn't it? He pursued you. Not only that, thousands of years later, 
still born dead in our sins, he pursues us and bringing the gospel to us and then transforms us through that message and our hearts are given new. Who gives us new hearts? God does. Why do we have new hearts? God does. God pursues us. You know, I was a sinner running the other way and for some amazing reason, God said, I got that one. That one's mine. He pursued me. Why? Because he's a gracious and good and kind God. A good shepherd. Man, if we understand this, if we understand this kind of pursuit, and now my joy and your joy, Christian, is in who? Him. Your sins are forgiven. We are totally satisfied with him. We are going to be with him forever. We are going to delight in our God forever. Is there any reason why we won't find joy in seeing other people come to Christ? No, it's just common sense, isn't it? What a glorious God. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his own son to be a propitiation for our sins. What a glorious God. Favorite words in the entire Bible. Two of them. You ready? But God. They are my favorite two words. But God. Wicked sinner that I am, but God. He pursued me. He pursued you. Rejoice in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this glorious truth. That you are a loving and kind God who pursues the lost. Give us eyes, ears, hearts, minds to understand you. Help us to rejoice in what you rejoice in. We praise you and thank you and pray this in Christ's name.